Welcome to the Insightful Investor Podcast, a weekly series that seeks to share industry, investment, and market insights. We define insights as concepts that are counterintuitive, widely misunderstood, or underappreciated. In other words, unique ideas that you probably won't hear elsewhere. I'm Alex Shahidi, the host of the podcast and co-CIO of Evoke Advisors, one of the nation's leading investment advisory firms. Learn more about our show at insightfulinvestor.org. Today, we're joined by Ben Reeves, the CIO of Wealthsimple, uh, one of the largest managed investing platforms in Canada, and I guess one of the fastest growing as well, with over $20 billion in assets in about 10 years and over 3 million uh, Canadian clients. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Ben. Thanks, Alex. Really happy to be here. Uh, why don't we kick it off with uh, just a summary of your background and what led you to this industry? And if you could highlight any interesting or unique segments of the path that you've traveled, I think that would be most interesting. Sure. Yeah, I had a, a bit of a unique uh, unique path in the industry where uh, I started really in asset management at, at Bridgewater about 10 years into my career. I'd always been interested in investing, but had done a tech startup and, and consulting prior. But then after I went to, uh, after going to grad school for a policy and, and business degree, was sort of always interested in asset management and, and wanted to try my hand at it. Uh, and so Bridgewater took a, took a chance on me and I was able to work there uh, in asset allocation and the client service group, um, kind of working with institutional investors on, on asset allocation issues. Uh, and also like over in the group that oversaw the portfolios on a daily basis. So, you know, I, I was at Bridgewater about five years and got to see like a really tremendous education and, and had a lot of uh, you know, great mentors. One of the nice things about that place is people really take the time to uh, to teach it in a, in a first principles way. But when I was at Bridgewater, I, I also discovered towards the end of my tenure that my kidneys were failing, which made it, as you can imagine, like very difficult to uh, to work or, or, or really do anything. So uh, I had to take some time off and get a transplant. I tried to go back, but it didn't really work as you can imagine it's a pretty uh uh it's a pretty intense environment and you know i couldn't really make it make it through a day bridgewater is really wonderful and helped me through that but it you know ultimately wasn't the right fit for me and then so as as i was starting to you know starting to get back in the workforce starting to you know figure out how do i you know how can i start re-engaging with the world again i knew someone early from well simple and they were looking for part-time investing help and they had been I joined probably three or four years into the journey for, uh, for Wellsimple, and and you know they had, they had had a lot of growth, but then we're thinking, okay, we're getting to a certain scale. Uh, let's professionalize certain functions and, and let's build out a real you know a real investing practice and investing team. Uh, so I was lucky enough to be able to sort of start from scratch at uh, at, at Wellsimple, uh, which has been a really fun journey since then. So w- when you started, uh, do, you, do you recall how big they were and how many how many clients they had? We were about. Is under two billion in in assets. I don't remember the number of clients, but uh, you know, significantly, significantly smaller. Like we'll do a couple months now of our total AUM. You know, back back you know five years ago or so. That's pretty amazing. Um, and and is your health better? And you're in a better place now. And obviously, I I mean, I, I know people who worked at Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world, and being fully healthy is hard to work there. Uh, let alone having health challenges that you have to overcome. Um, so, so hopefully that's uh, been improving. Yeah, it's been uh, like 
the transplant community and, and how it all works is is really uh, it's really an incredible gift to, to get to you know you sort of lose lose everything and and you're able to come back through through that and you have a lot of people to help you but I, I'm doing great so far. Good, good. Uh, really glad to hear that. You know, so so Bridgewater and Wealth Simple are almost like two ends of the spectrum in terms of, you know, one end you have, you know, really large, super sophisticated institutional investors, maybe the most sophisticated in the world. And on the other end, you have, you know, the average retail investor. Uh, what, what are some of the similarities and differences that you've observed uh, spending time, you know, uh, deeply involved at, at, in asset allocation on, at Bridgewater and as CIO with the retail investors? I think in a lot of ways it's it's very structurally similar. I, you know, I think in two important ways. Uh, one way is both are trying to accomplish something in the real world. You have inflows. You have you know some spending goal in the future, or you know, in the case of you know pensions or endowments uh, currently, uh, and you're trying to take risk in a way that you know manages inflows to, to sort of what are the outcomes in the world you want to have. And that, that structures a lot of the asset allocation problem. So in, in that way, it's very similar. Um, it's also very similar in some of the, the governance and agency challenges that, that you face. And I think that that creates a lot of different asset allocation decisions uh, in the industry. You know, just given the randomness, it's really hard to assess the quality of an investment manager, right? If you're like, if I like a shirt or if I'm uh, and I buy another shirt, you know, it's probably going to be pretty good if it's from the same company. Whereas, you know, if an asset or asset class is doing well, uh, it's actually maybe more likely that that asset class isn't going to do as well in the future. And similarly with, with active managers, right? It, it's really hard to, to sort of make prospective judgments about, uh, about how things will go in the future. So, I, and I think both institutional investors or many institutional investors and many retail investors uh, they deal with that by having pretty tight benchmarks to a conventional portfolio. And that's, I think, huge pressure of individual investors to be conventional. Um, and also with institutional investors, right? Because you ultimately do have boards of directors that are, that are kind of implicitly benchmarking you to the, uh, to a local equity index and so on. So it, it, a lot of that is, it feels very, very similar. Uh, and then even behind the scenes at, at Simple, we've constructed a, sort of a representative institutional investor, and we kind of track deviations uh, and track mirror and so on for that, uh, for that investor. Uh, so like, I, it feels like very, very similar in that, uh, in, the, in that structural sense and sort of how do you approach investing as a, as a professional uh, manager. But then I think in terms of how you, like what are the range of things you can invest in, it, it, it gets pretty different. Um, I think for uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, one reason is uh, it's just it's way harder for individual investors to assess uh, strategies, pick managers, you know, figure out, and even once you see performance, as you're talking about, like figure out it, you know, is the thing actually performing in a way that's helpful for me, or is it a risk that I'm running that I don't really want to run? Uh, whereas institutional investors can. You know they, they can do that more and make sure that their managers are operating with a mandate and they have a you know portfolio construction philosophy. Uh, so I think that's where it really deviates is what sort of risks can you take on and what's the legibility of those risks um, to the investor versus just a uh, just a single return stream. 
but I think in both cases, uh, it puts a premium on sort of high return to risk active strategies, you know, like sort of high information ratio in, in jargon, uh, as opposed to, you know, your highest return to risk ratio of the overall portfolio. And then, so I think it, as you can communicate better, or if you can really work on these governance or trust or agency problems, uh, there is a lot of room to improve outcomes relative to what's conventional, uh, just because of these sort of structural things that, that, that are that are part of the industry. You know, I mean, an, an institution is, is a committee or a board, and those are made up of individuals, right, who are in themselves, you know, retail investors in many cases. Um, so I, I guess the, the big difference in terms of structure is in one case, you have one person dealing with their own money. In the other case, you have a group of people dealing with, with somebody else's money. And, and then also like the, the, the board will, it's like the same problem that the board will be able to take a little bit more time in understanding a process and a strategy, you know, as opposed to an individual investor where you're sort of seeing something on your phone when you're taking care of your kids or, you know, that there's a lot more. Uh, a lot less focus on process. But yeah, I think that that's right. And that creates the um, uh, a lot of the governance issues. Right. And then is your sense of um, the sophistication level? I think the assumption is institutional clients are more sophisticated than than retail investors. Um, and, and and that may be true. So so first off, do you, do you think generally that's that's accurate? And then second, what what is it about the sophistication level that you think it differentiates the, the two? I think it it is accurate simply because you've had you know you have people who are doing it professionally. It's it's your discipline, uh, and and you know you of course learn things when you when you apply yourself to something and try to compound over time. So uh, it is very uh, it it is different, um, and I think for uh, but the one thing that's very similar is that the things that ultimately make you successful probably both as an institutional and as a Individual investor is just following your your governance process, following the thing that that you set out in advance that you're going to do, following your plan. The thing that individual investors get get uh, stuck on is, you know, uh, do I really want to keep depositing if you know if the market's gone down? Uh, and institutional investors, you know, they have their funding plan that's probably already already established. Uh, but then it's you know, do I believe the asset allocation after say three five years, and then the, the pension funds. There's a lot of evidence that they do sort of act like individual investors in, in some of that uh, performance chasing. But then I, I think uh, for, for more interesting or sophisticated strategies, uh, it's easier for individual investors to invest in things where there's a story or something that's very intuitive that, that you can understand, um, which means, I think, alternative asset classes where you're investing in a company either through debt or, or, or equity or, you know, real estate uh, is a lot easier to understand and believe in and buy uh, as opposed to, say, a quantitative strategy that might help your return to risk ratio more. But then, you know, every strategy, even if you're at a, a two, 2.0 return to risk ratio, is going to underperform sometimes. And if that's very, very hard for individual investors to to deal with if you don't really understand what's happening. Um, whereas with institutional investors, there will be a governance process. Uh, they will have expectations for managers and a certain range of outcomes they expect. And, and that's, that's really pretty well understood, I find. One of my uh, experiences over you know, a couple of decades is in, in many cases, emotions drive decision-making for, for investors. 
Uh, in life, everybody. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like all decisions, yeah. That's right. And it, it, I, I feel like the emotional investor generally is not a great investor. And it's because of what you said earlier, which is markets are cyclical, managers are cyclical. Um, you know, we were taught early on buy low, sell high, and most people will buy high and sell low. And it's because emotions drive you to do that because in all other parts of your life, you sell the underperformers and you buy the outperformers. And and so is is your sense that on the institutional side, because there's more process, that they're less prone to to making you know emotional uh, emotionally driven decisions that may be a mistake than individual investors, or, or how do you think about kind of that that difference? So what, what I see in uh, what is what we see now in our client data in in individual investors who are asking us to manage money for them um, is that if there's market stress, they don't withdraw they just don't put new money into the market so and that's a very emotional thing and then they, they wait for a wait for a rally to put uh to put money into the uh into the market um so i think that there's some belief there's a, a lot of folk belief in um in, in the risk premium right for for a, a, a kind of the vocal heads of vanguard school uh, of investing and i think to some extent people know the right answer is to is to stick with it they just don't want to put their new savings uh into the market uh where you know if people are trading on their own, they're much more likely to totally de-risk after you see, a, and that's also what our data suggests them um, totally de-risk after you see a drawdown. On the institutional investor side, yes, there's a process, uh, but I think it also just takes longer for that emotional process to play out as an institutional investor. Uh, and I'm more basing this on academic research as opposed to my firsthand observations. I kind of wasn't in it long enough to to do that uh but you do see the same things of but it's more on like a a five-year time horizon where you start to see the the performance chasing and then that's ironically like really the mean reverting time horizon that, that you get right it's five years but it's also very understandable that this thing hasn't worked for five years you know why do i think it's going to work now so and then then there probably matters of degree and that'll depend on uh type of investor and, and you know what your emotional makeup is and, and, and so on. To me, that's one of the more fascinating parts about investing is the is the uh, behavioral side of it. And because if you think about it, what you earn isn't isn't what the returns you see on paper are for each strategy. It's it's what what you call the dollar weighted return. It's it's the return you earn for the dollars you put in and the dollars you take out and the timing of doing that. And and just in my experience, most people end up buying things after they've gone up, whether it's a manager or an asset class, and they sell them after they go down. And over time, they do worse than if they just stayed the course the whole way. And um, so and so one of one of the challenges that I always face is is fighting that emotional pull to do the wrong thing at the wrong time, um, even you know even though it's extremely counterintuitive, because because basically everywhere else in life. If something is done poorly for five years, that's very predictive of its future results. And you know, despite despite all the warnings of past performance, is not indicative of future results. Uh, we, you know, I think just about everybody ignores that. And and, I, and that what I found is more sophisticated investors make more educated excuses for why you know past performance yeah. is gonna is is predictive of future results. Uh, you know, so it, it is. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced something like that as well between the two. I think that also even expands to the expands to like the social psych research about partisanship, right? And, and then the it's not like smarter people are less partisan; they just come up with better reasons for you know for like why support gun control or don't 
or whatever. Really interesting studies uh, about that. One of the things I learned at at, at Bridgewater is uh, when you're constructing your portfolio, you want to take those thoughts and emotions you have and turn them into math, which then I think really helps structure the problem, right? I had this view, okay, you know, what's the ratio of that view? What's the probability of being right? I have a strategic asset allocation. Okay. If I do like this view, uh, how much do I weight it? And, and it's a long and a short position. Uh, and I, I think going through that process, even if you think you have a, you're wrong that you have an edge, that also that, that does manage the risk somewhat in a way that uh, if you're an individual investor, you're not quite this kind of uh, rigor and process where you're not, it, you're not thinking in those terms and it's a little harder to, uh, harder to manage. Right. So when you're, when you're designing, you know, asset allocation for a sophisticated institution versus the average retail investor, obviously neither one are computers, they have biases. And, and I think a lot of that is predictable and understandable. Uh, so how do you conceptually, before we get into the details, how do you conceptually think about constructing an optimal portfolio for, you know, one versus the other? For the individual investor, it, it, you really you start with a goal of wealth building, right? And, and so, for the investor, it, it's mostly about saving, right? Uh, and saving means growing your top line, not as much as your expenses, with your with your time, doing something that's more valuable for the world, or something that's paid is more valuable for the world, and, and that's sort of by far the most important thing thing that you can do. Uh, so we spend a lot of time on uh, on that, and then we sort of model that into the into the uh, asset allocation. And you do that by just educating them about this is the thing that really moves the needle. This is something you actually have control over, whereas markets you have less control over. Um, so it's just education. Exactly. And then the thing that they're interested in at the time, you sort of, you always have the same punchline, right? That there's a risk premium for risky assets over cash. Uh, but you take the thing that's really interesting at the time that they're thinking about and package whatever they're interested in learning about and, and, and but keep that message going. So, you know, recently we've been talking a lot about cash, right? What is it? What's the role in portfolio? How does it work as an active strategy? Uh, how does it fit into an asset allocation, if at all? Uh, but then the, the punchline is still there's a risk premium, you know, uh, for risky assets over cash. 2021, we're more talking about don't get too excited, keep rebalancing. You know, you don't, you don't need to chase tech stocks. Uh, but, but, you know, keep putting your money into the market, but the kind of same, you know, and, and you get, say, you know, four to five percent over cash for your uh, for your equity portfolio. But in terms of how we, how we then set up the portfolio, it's uh, money and money out. Right. That's the most important thing. Uh, and then it's really putting your money at risk and I think any reasonable portfolio. Right. Like that's that's important. If, even if you're just getting a equity risk premium, that that's much better usually than putting your money in cash over most time periods that matter to investors. Uh, and then finally, you think about, okay, you know, how can I manage this range of outcomes for investors? Uh, and so we think about the timeline that they have and then the kinds of ways that it can go wrong. So, you know, you think you're with risk premium, you're probably going to do fairly well. Uh, but then if you're overly concentrated in anything that can really, you know, that gives you a, a bad tail, of, of outcomes, right? Uh, so for most of our, and we're trying to balance those two things, right? So trying to balance, making sure you stay believing, making sure you keep putting your money at risk, but also trying to manage those 10, 15 year periods or even 20 year periods where, where the, say a, a domestic stock market can, can underperform. 
And so what we, the way we do that is, is we just have a few different ways of diversifying. We use asset class diversification. Uh, we use geographic diversification and some style diversification, kind of to describe them as each, uh, and then put together a portfolio uh, that we think has a kind of better chance of consistent 10-year return, say, for our uh, our investors with a long time horizon, which which is a lot of our client base, right? A lot of our client base is in your 30s, saving for retirement. So do you find that challenging to do? Because conceptually, it's it sounds pretty obvious, which is if you want to get you know reasonably attractive returns over time with less risk, you just own a bunch of different return streams that are different uh, from one another, but individually attractive. So conceptually, that makes sense. And the math is, is bulletproof. But in practice, when you ask somebody how the market is doing, they talk about the stock market. And, and so the reference point is the stock market. So if you have a portfolio that's more diversified than the stock market, even if it gets the same returns over a long period of time, it's, you're going you're gonna to zig and zag at different times. And, and when the reference point is something that is more volatile than your portfolio, you're going to be disappointed maybe half the time or so. So how do you think about all of that? Well, I think and the other thing is when you're managing on our managed platform, we have hundreds of thousands of clients on our managed platform, right? And that's a huge mix, right? A lot of people just aren't paying attention, have, have no idea. They hear from me once a, uh, once a month, look at their balance occasionally, uh, and just trust us to manage their money for them. Um, and, and, and that's where you feel a real responsibility to, to generate the, the best risk to return portfolio that you can, right? Because they're just giving, here's the money, I'm going to keep, keep investing. But then you have this other group of investors who are doing the thing that you said. And, and you're, if you have one model, uh, you're sort of, you're trying to balance between those, uh, between those two extremes. Um, and so we do it in, in a couple ways. One, we just use a, sort of a standard uh, reference and tracking error model, and we allocate risk to different ways of deviating from a, uh, from a reference portfolio. Uh, and I think the other thing we do is just spend a lot of time on communication, uh, and all of that communication is focused on just being useful to investors to help them do the right things uh, at the right times. Um, and, and I think so. That, that's sort of how we're trying to balance that, uh, that tension. Yeah, in my experience, the clients who and the investors who are the least involved tend to do the best, and the ones who are more involved tend to, you know, buy high and sell low more more often than the ones who are less involved. And I think it's because the more involved you are, the more prone you are to the emotions driving your decision making process. And as we talked about earlier, oftentimes that's like the wrong thing to do at the wrong time. And, and so it, it's, it sounds like you, you almost have to, you have to communicate to, to ward off the, the ones who are more involved uh, from doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Is that generally how you think about it? Yeah. And even the ones who aren't involved, they'll still see their portfolio go down and maybe they're more absolute return motivated as opposed to relative. And that's another thing you have to manage, right? Uh, and actually, and then the third dimension that's, that's uh, hard to manage is if you are doing a a portfolio that's managing skew or downside, you're trying to make, in some ways, your arithmetic return be sort of close to your compounder return or, or above. But if you're, if the implicit reference is a, like a highly volatile portfolio with a high arithmetic return, you're going to have more years where you're going to sort of struggle with that relative performance. So I think that's the third dimension is the, the relative, particularly if you're trying for more consistent um, uh, returns. So, but I, I think we're, we're basically trying to manage that balance trying to manage the, the drawdown 
issues as well as the uh, performance chasing issues. Uh, and it, it's sort of a mixture of, uh, uh, of portfolio construction and then communications. Um, and then as we, uh, with our, we have a team of advisors, so it, we also just offer different portfolio options. So like if you are truly a benchmark driven investor, we will give you, we'll, we'll give you a, a very conventional portfolio, you know, back to that hierarchy of, uh, of ways we can add value, right? It's a lot of it is just putting your money to work in a reasonable way. It's a totally reasonable portfolio, uh, you know, and, and go from there. And, and so communication is a big part of, of your responsibility and the value add to, to your investors, how do you how do you think about effectively communicating? Because uh, you know p- people are different; they they absorb information differently. They're different, uh, you know, different uh, experiences, different levels of sophistication. So, how do you how do you think about effectively communicating to three million plus people? Yeah, and, and they mostly uh, take in information differently than I do, right? And so I've had to had to learn that. And and we have a we actually have a great team of of people who who specialize it. So like I have an editor who used to work at a men's magazine. He's sort of really good at, at shaping things. Um, but so what we think of is you're probably not paying that much attention. We have you maybe once a month to pay attention to us. Uh, and we want to give you uh, a message that you're going to get and it's something that's useful to you uh, in a way that you'll sort of immediately understand and you can read on your phone. And so what that means is we'll do a message with one message, something that is just focused on being helpful, uh, and improving your outcomes. And we're trying to get it down to like, you can get the whole point in a picture or, or a graph. Uh, and that, that's sort of the bar that we, that we hold it for doing our job really well. Uh, that's the bar. So like at the end of third quarter, uh, our graph was uh, a cone chart or a range of outcomes chart. And then we sort of showed how things have been going over well, simple inception. You could see the drawdown and the recovery. And then the third quarter wasn't a big deal. Like that's the thing that you saw on your phone. Um, this last month for end of year, we didn't do a market outlook. We said, we just, we pulled flows data into stock ETFs and overlaid it with, uh, with stock market performance, cut it up by the major segments of the market. Uh, and you get this like gap to smile for the flows, uh, but really no flows from the, from the point of the rebound in the market in June of 2022 until the like fourth quarter this year. Uh, and, and, but you see that in a, like kind of viscerally in a chart and then we're asking, okay, like reflect on your risk tolerance and, and what you've been doing. Um, but really focus on that. If I see that chart, I'm, I'm going to get basically the message. So obviously simple, right? Wealth simple, keep it simple, but sophisticated. And, and it's, it's kind of that, that marriage that is really hard to do. Right to, to take to take a complicated concept and put it into one picture or one page is a lot harder to do than to write a whole paper about it. Um, but it's a lot more effective when it's shorter because you know you have limited attention span. That's is that generally how you think about it? Yeah, and it's just respectful to people about how they want to receive information, how much they're willing to put in, uh, and then you're just trying like really really laser focus on trying to be useful and get a lot of feedback and, and make sure that you're uh, useful. Which isn't that different from writing a white paper for an investor that really wants a white paper, right? And and in it's institutional, you're thinking about that as well, right? How does this person want to receive information? What is the board like? What are the dynamics? It's sort of very similar in um, in investing. Um, the other thing we do in communicating is beyond that for the for the clients that do want to go deep, we show up once a month on a webinar, uh, present on a topic, 
start at a high level, go deep, uh, and then we'll just sit there and answer all of their questions. So like for the clients who do really want that engagement, then there's not many of them. So it actually still scales over hundreds of thousands. And that's, it's a really fun part of the job too. You get some good, some interesting questions. Uh, but, and that's how you try to manage sort of both groups. Got it. But the majority of the people, they just want, give me the short answer. And, and, and I guess you also need to identify the gaps in their understanding to, to round out their, their investment knowledge to make them better investors. Uh, so it's a part of it is identification and, and another part of it is effectively communicating it in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. And so we keep our eye on flows data. Where's where, which portfolios is the money going into look at market flows data, uh, and then try to get a vibe for, uh, you know, what are people really worried about? Get a lot of feedback from advisors, uh, and then come up with a topic, uh, and then do the research to, you know, to get whatever that, that really important point to get across it. Yeah. I guess you can tell a lot when you have millions of, of investors, you can tell a lot about what they're thinking by the flow of the, of the money, right? That people vote with their, with their cash. Yeah, they vote with their cash. And then we also, uh, I think because we're a tech first company, we spend a lot of time just talking to investors, right? And you understand metal models better that way. You understand how they use the product uh, and, and you stay current. So we have you know, every time that our, uh, our, our senior you know, leadership team gets together, we'll do a panel session with clients just to make sure that we're, you know, we're really staying tight to, you know, what are you thinking, believing and, and feeling, right? Because when you're an investor, you're, uh, or any company, right? You, you think people are paying way, way more attention to you than they actually are, right? So it's really important to, to you really understand for communicating, where are you? What are you thinking about? What do you know? What do you not know? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, especially when you have large numbers of investors, because you have a lot of data and oftentimes the data may be different than what you expected. And so it's like an objective assessment and there's a lot of anecdotes and, and subjective analysis, but the, the objectivity, I think, makes it really interesting. Yeah, it's just being very rigorous about getting outside of your own head. That's a great foundation for being helpful, I think. Yeah, I mean, for, for us as investment professionals, sometimes it's difficult to pull yourself away from all your experience and all your knowledge and zoom out and view the world through somebody else's eyes who doesn't do this for a living. That's probably one of the, the biggest challenges. And it's hard to do that when you're in it every day. Right. And I, and I think uh, for professionals, it's really good to put, you know, just as you, as you uh, have an investment process where you go learn about what's in the world in a structured way. Right. Uh, you want to have that information gathering process as well, you know, to make sure that you are actually understanding the world right, and your clients in as, in as accurate a way as you possibly can. Uh, and then we, at Wellsum, we do that in a variety of ways, but I, I think it, it applies everywhere. Right? It, it, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking that I've seen in a lot of the industry. Yeah, well, what I've found with uh, investment managers um, being on the advisory side and kind of effectively sitting on the same side of the table as the as the client, the investor, is a lot of wealth, uh, a lot of investment investment managers come in and they make a presentation to the client, and I'll be sitting there listening to them, and the majority of the time they're not talking about the right things. They're they're either too zoomed in or or they're talking about things that the client doesn't really care about. And there's a big mismatch between the communication that's, that's being uh, delivered versus the communication that the, the end user, the investor, wants to hear. Uh, and, and these two groups typically have a hard time connecting because they're on two different wavelengths. 
Um, and and I and I feel like uh, whether you're a sophisticated uh, institutional investor or uh, a retail investor, regardless of level of sophistication, it's bridging that gap. That's probably one of the hardest parts of what we do. Um, and uh, it sounds like uh, what you're describing is uh, you've developed a pretty good expertise in in figuring out what that gap is and communicating effectively. We're working on it. Yeah. Then uh, we have, I think, a lot of really talented people internally who think differently, which is within Wilson Bolt, which is really, uh, really useful. Um, but then also, as you know, we've been allocating to active managers recently. And I think one of the things we can do that's most useful to them and be as good a partner to them is really try to help them refine that and, and be uh, like one of the things that they need to do to, to reach this investor base, both from a portfolio construction side, but also the, you know, the communication. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I, I know Wealthsimple has focused a lot on alternative investments. Uh, I think it's becoming a popular buzzword. Um, would you would you maybe talk through how you think about alternatives? Um, why the motivation to include those in investor portfolios, and just just generally how you think about that entire space? Yeah, so I, we started basically because a lot of us invest in alternatives and. And we want it, right? And that's, I think, is a good bar for an investment product or any product is, is, do I want it? And a lot of our senior management team, our board, uh, investing alternatives, and, and we've seen the benefits. Uh, and we wanted to be able to offer it to our, uh, to our clients. And then if you look at the p- potential for improving investment outcomes, you know, the alternatives can be great diversifiers, right? Really help the risk, return to risk ratio. Um, or, you know, in other cases, say private equity, I don't think it's a particularly good diversifier. But if you have a long time horizon and you can beat the uh, an equity index by even one percent, and you're able to compound that, you know, that's a really big difference in how much you can spend when you're actually, you know, when, you, when you're starting to, to cash in and, and, and spend your savings. Uh, so th- there can be really, really uh, tremendous value. Uh, or private credit, you get somewhere in between, right? You you have a pretty good return to risk ratio. It's somewhat correlated, but you also, uh, with our portfolios being. It's like mostly equity and treasury risk, a little bit of gold. Uh, having that floating rate component, uh, you know, it, it can be really, really, uh, really useful as well. Uh, so we take that, we want it, we think it's good for clients, um, and then the, the alternatives industry now it's like a, a pretty bad user experience right now. It's really hard if you're an individual investor to engage with. Right, the, the ops are really hard to simplify it's kind of the deep end of the pool, right? Like you can't just buy a Vanguard ETF. You have to choose a particular manager. You might not be set up to due diligence. There, there, there's all that, uh, that component. Uh, and then the liquidity is really hard to manage, right? You're not used to that. Uh, and, you know, how do you set up a structure to do that? And if we can take all of that and then make it actually a delightful experience, uh, it's something we want. It's something that we think will improve client outcomes. You know, it made a lot of sense for us to, uh, to start adding them. I think about diversification. There's there's equities and different flavors of equities. Those are mostly highly correlated to one another. Um, there's bonds, but bonds tend to have lower returns. So that's more of like a diversifier risk reducer than it is uh, something that you can bank on for attractive returns long term. So you, so you need something else. And I guess that something else is alternatives. It's a broad category. And it's like all these other things you can invest in that are not stocks or bonds. Um, and, and the challenge is access um, and quality and simplicity, right? And so, uh, so maybe talk through some of your uh, innovation in terms of making those things accessible, uh, easy to invest in, 
Uh, I know you've created some ETFs. Uh, maybe, maybe talk through how you've uh, uh, made that leap to make those things accessible to millions of people. So for alternatives, we we think about our clients, they, they're sort of asking us for asset class exposure. Like for most of our clients, that's that's what they need. Uh, they need it in a way that is uh, semi-liquid, mostly on the way in. Like that's really important, right? It's really hard for them to manage calls. Uh, but then also they usually want that option to sell if say you move or, you know, something, uh, you know, something happens where you, or you, you can buy a house and, and you really need those funds. Uh, so we're focusing mostly on broad asset class exposure, uh, institutional quality managers, managers that we think are, are world-class uh, and then extremely easy to use and engage with. So language that you understand an operational experience that is, you know, the, that you know the bar we have is delightful, uh, and uh, uh, and it fits in, in Canada. It actually needs to fit into a there are like some some tax rules that you have to kind of think pretty hard about uh, in order to structure the fund in the right way. Uh, but that's really what we're trying to do. So asset class exposure, easy, and it fits into like the, the right tax uh, structure for them. Uh, for ETFs, is a little different. Where we had some existing mandates, I had a socially responsible mandate. Uh, in a Sharia compliant mandate, um, and then when I when I looked at the socially compliant mandate, uh, I didn't see ETFs that were actually meeting the goals that the clients were asking for. Uh, meaning, clients either want in socially responsible when you talk to them, either want impact, or uh, I don't want exposure to companies that do things I disagree with. Uh, and a lot of the ESG funds, they're saying there's this unpriced risk called ESG. And we're going to help manage that using this scoring system and sort of optimize that scoring system to a market cap weighted index. Um, and so there's a big difference between what our clients wanted and then and, and what we had available. Uh, and on top of that, there are like real issues with ESG uh, scoring that I think have sort of come out and are, are now pretty widely understood. And so then when we're looking at listed equities, I don't think you can really do impact investing, like especially at our scale and maybe on the margin. So we wanted to do the just figure out what are the companies that are doing things that our clients don't agree with, be very clear and transparent about that, uh, and then give a highly diversified exposure after that. Um, but because we couldn't find that in the market, uh, we decided to make it ourselves. Um, I think similar, and then for sure, compliant is even clearer. There just wasn't a way to get good global stock exposure in Canada in a Sharia compliant way. And there's a lot of operational things you have to do uh, to deliver a Sharia compliant ETF. And we are willing to do that work to serve this sort of underserved group of uh, group of investors. Great. And it, and it sounds like it's something that you're going to continue to expand on. Um, obviously, there are new asset classes that are new return streams that pop up all the time. There's uh, new interests from, from investors um, you can be even more innovative with fund structure, um, and it sounds like something you're, you spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, and there are obvious ways we can continue to improve our portfolios. Uh, I think that's a motivator. Uh, clients want impact. Can we do that in a way that uh, that we feel good about and we can say is actually uh, impact? And also, as we grow in scale, there become different things that you know, our cost structure changes and there are other things we can do. Uh, so we're kind of looking at all those dimensions. So obviously, uh, you're you're in Canada. Um, um, would you uh, and uh, and you have a lot of experience in the U.S. Uh, would you would you maybe talk through some of the uh, the differences uh, uh, for for the industry in Canada? 
um, you know, how it's set up and um, anything that jumps out to you in terms of, of, you know, something that maybe U.S. investors aren't as familiar with over there. Sure. I mean, the thing that jumps out in Canada is a lot of the money, uh, a lot of the people's savings is advised uh, and they pay for a lot of the money is in mutual funds and they pay the highest fees for those mutual funds in the world. I think the most popular mutual fund uh, costs about 2%, and that's not an anomaly. Or that's, and that includes an advisory fee. So it's, it's sort of all wrapped in the, in the mutual fund uh, structure. Uh, and so, uh, and if you think about our equity risk premium at 4 to 5%, like that's a lot of your returns that are going to advice and, uh, and, and a mutual fund. Um, but uh, people like the advice and the stability. Um, and then, uh, one of the reasons for that historically, I think, is that uh, the big banks have used branch networks to distribute pretty effectively, and they're, they're highly trusted uh, as uh, as investment managers. And, and you know, they are highly stable institutions. There's 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 some truth um, uh, there's some truth there. But if you're trying to manage for investment outcomes, uh, giving up that much of your return, paying arguably active fees for mostly passive strategies, you know, when we when we see what those return streams are, they're like one percent tracking error, one and a one and a half percent tracking error. You take your tracking error and just by like overweighting credit or you know something risky. Um, it's not like these managers are bad, but if you're paying two percent, you have one percent tracking error. You have to be like extremely good to add value over that uh, over that bogey. Um, so it, and it, uh, that then I think gives us an opportunity to offer the things that people want out of that advisory experience. Uh, you want. Um, you actually you want someone you trust, right? Uh, you want someone reliable, but then also potentially improve the outcomes relative to that two percent fee. So it sounds like wealth symbol in some ways is a disruptor in in Canada. How do you how do you think about that? You know, I, I think that's fair. Uh, wealth simple was the first online financial advisor uh, starting in twenty fourteen, which is six years after the, the U.S. launched. Um, and there was a lot of regulatory hurdles to go through just to uh, just to get there. Uh, and then I, I think we are really focused on technology first solutions, not scaling our costs as we scale assets, and using that to deliver sort of extraordinary value to clients. Um, and, and then moving uh, moving as fast as we can in a way that still delivers a high quality experience. Uh, and, and if you look at that way of approaching the world relative to a, uh, we have a, a physical branch network, we have an advisory network, we're making a lot of money on mutual funds. Uh, there's a, sort of a lot of room for friction between those two models. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this is uh, this is re- really interesting, at, le- at least for me, uh, hearing kind of uh, the world outside of the U.S. in terms of our industry um, and, and just your approach to uh, constructing portfolios is it's just very thoughtful because, and the reason I say that is because you're not just thinking about it in terms of what's optimal, where when you're just doing it on paper, but you're also thinking about the client experience, uh, the communication with clients, what they can handle, what is appropriate for one group versus another. Um, and, and all of that uh, leads to better results over time, which is you know great for, for all parties involved. Hopefully, yeah, we have to see the results come through. But that, yeah, that, that, that's the idea, and then and thinking really hard about clients, I think, is central to the to the whole approach. Whole approach. I totally agree there. Why don't we end with uh, a final insight that uh, that maybe something uh, unique or interesting that you've learned 
throughout your career that may not be obvious to, to most people? It's something I said earlier, uh, and I've really learned it at, uh, at Well Simple, which is there is a lot of value to be added to the industry and for client outcomes if you focus on being delightful and if that's your bar. And then uh, giving people who aren't, fi- aren't financial people who think very differently but are very talented real power in making the decisions and how to structure that uh, and how to, how to make experiences delightful. Uh, I don't see that in the industry very much. Um, I think there's, it forces you to do things and really think about yourself in a different way. Like, am I, am I delightful to interact with? How am I falling short? And it, that's been a real, I've learned a lot from the team at Well Simple uh, about that. I've come a long way. Uh, and I'm still learning every day from uh, people who think very differently to me of really different, uh, you know, uh, passions and abilities. Uh, but I think that that tension uh, hopefully will, will result in some in some pretty good experiences. That sounds awesome. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to to speak with me and uh, sharing your insights. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode please visit our website at insightfulinvestor.org to access past shows and learn more about our podcast. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at insightfulinvestor.org. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations, nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Please note that certain senior members of Evoke have an economic interest in Wealthsimple and also serve in an advisory role to the company.